Okay, let's turn over to Matthew chapter 5. We're just continuing on in our series where we've been teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. And we're just picking up really where we left off. Now, last week we only taught this on Sunday morning. And so I'd encourage you, if you're trying to stay up to, up to speed with what we've been teaching, just go ahead and get the podcast off our website from last week where we talked about some of the different areas of um, challenge that Jesus encourages uh, us to overcome by the grace of God. And so in Matthew 5, we've already touched the core values. We've already touched the standard of what it, looks, what it means to, to live in a, sort of a abandonment, radical Christianity, what it means to be salt and light. And then Jesus' uh, handling of the uh, law and the prophets, that he didn't come to do away with it, He is the fulfillment of it. And so he's going to now take us through from verse 21 to the verse 48. He's going to take us through five specific areas of challenge, toxins, if you will, that we've got to overcome by the grace of God in our our walk, in our Christian walk. And, um, And these particular areas are... Uh, they're broad. They touch many different facets of our life. And so uh, last week, I touched the first two. I talked about anger, contempt in the heart, particularly is what he deals with. And I touched on lust. And, and again, he deals with the, the inner issue. And, and that's really the key to uh, righteousness. It's the inner issues that play out uh, in the way that you live every day. And so it's got to be real inside for it, to, for it to manifest on the outside. But a, f- a false righteousness that's only external, that lacks the inner reality, is what Jesus corrects and rebukes in Matthew 6 and in Matthew 23 and, and throughout his earthly ministry. So let me just give this to you. If you're taking notes, I, I want to give you the breakdown of these five different areas. Now, if you've ever heard any teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, others identify six areas. I do think there are six, but I think five are problems and one is the antidote. That's the way I see it. So the, the, the breakdown is basically, it'll, you'll, if you look at your Bible, most Bibles have the, the section headings the way I'm going to give them to you. Maybe the name of the heading is different, but... The way it breaks down is this. It's chapter 5, verse 21 through 26. He's dealing with the issue of anger or contempt. Verse 21 through 26 is anger. Verse 27 through 30 is lust. And he talks about how adultery is an issue of the heart. And then verse 31 and 32, I just use... Breaking covenant or covenant breaking. That's the the title I use over that. He specifically talks about the marital relationship. But I do believe it applies to all covenants. But in context, he's dealing with the marriage relationship and the issue of divorce. And we're going to deal with that tonight. Verse 33 through 37. Swearing falsely. Swearing falsely. And then verse 38 through 42 is the issue of retaliation. Paying back. 
an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. 38 through 42, it's retaliation. And then finally, the last section, 43 through 48, is the answer, in my opinion, and it's love. He gives the antidote to those five toxins. So as I said, tonight we're going to cover covenant breaking and swearing falsely. I'm going to spend most of my time on covenant breaking. And, you know, if you're in my shoes, it's pretty interesting because it's lined up for me to speak on this just by going verse by verse. Just We started eight weeks ago uh, dealing with the Sermon on the Mount. And this week I was already planning on dealing with this issue of... Uh, Covenant breaking, specifically in marriage, uh, the marital covenant. And uh, some of you will know and some of you won't, but one of the, our major Christian leaders came out just this week and said that divorce is permissible and okay uh, if one of the spouses has a uh, major illness, such as Alzheimer's. You can just go ahead and divorce your spouse, and that would be fine. That's on, that was on TV this week. And uh, the news outlets picked it up and started hammering us. Believers, I mean. And it's an unfortunate statement. But I want to go ahead and just make a very plain statement. That the marriage covenant is in sickness and in health. And that uh, a sickness like Alzheimer's or cancer or whatever is not... Biblical grounds for divorce. I want to be very, very clear on that point. And um, that, to me, is just a symptom. That statement that the, the brother made, it's just, a, it's just a symptom of a bigger problem. And, and, it, and the bigger problem is this, and you don't have to be, a, a, you know, really prophetic to believe this or to see this, but there is a major attack on the marriage covenant, covenant in, our, in our society. And it's ultimately because there is an attack on the knowledge of God. And so Satan wants to mar the marriage covenant. He wants to deface marriage so that he can, you know, he can pervert the knowledge of God. And so uh, I want to do this. I want to read what Jesus said in Matthew 5. Verse 31 and 32. And then I want to lay some groundwork and then come back and deal with Jesus' specific teaching. Now, I will say this to you. This is not an exhaustive teaching on marriage and divorce. And I will say this, that I'm probably going to leave you with a few questions um, and, and I'm probably not going to answer more questions uh, than I leave you with. I'm probably going to leave you with a few questions. And the, the, reason, the reason is this. There are things that are clear to me from the scriptures, and I'm going to make statements on those, like you don't divorce your spouse because they get sick. Okay, there's certain things that are very clear to me. And then there's certain things that are not so clear to me. And if you do any study on this, and I am personally in a, Study and I'm reading multiple commentators and 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 you know multiple theological papers on this on this issue of marriage and divorce. But uh, if you study it for any time, you'll find there is as many opinions out there as there are commentators, and many many good 
uh, believers fall in different categories. And, and I'll just, if you want to go into the study, you can. There's about six different streams of thought as it relates to uh, divorce, remarriage, marriage, divorce, and remarriage. There's about six different chief ways that people think about it. And so it's a, it's a contentious subject. It's a very touchy subject, especially in our society, because divorce touches, uh, it's touched everybody in this room, and, and, it, and it continues to be a major issue. And so I'm not, like I said, I'm not giving the exhaustive teaching on it. I'm going to answer some questions, but I'll probably leave you with more questions than answers. But I will do my best to speak explicitly on the truth that I feel like is, is, is revealed to me. Speak straightforward on what the, the points that I see are. Let's look at verse 31 of Matthew 5. <clears throat> Let's work through this. Oh, I got to say one more thing. I'm sorry. I got to say this. My, what my heart is in declaring these things is obviously, number one, to be true to the scripture and glorify Jesus. But I, I don't, I'm not trying to vilify anybody who has gone through the tragedy of divorce. And so I hope to tenderly deal with people that have gone through divorce while simultaneously holding the tension of and hopefully uh, increasing in your eyes the sanctity and the holiness of what it means to engage in a marriage covenant. Now that's an interesting line to walk, but I think both are necessary. So my heart is tender toward those that have gone through divorce, but I also want to be really strong about the sanctity of the marital covenant. Okay, amen. Let's look at verse 31. Jesus speaking, Furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. Now that's two, two verses on a vast subject. I will say this and then we'll go and lay some groundwork. What Jesus is dealing with in every time that he says, you have heard it said, but I say, he's not specifically dealing with what Moses taught, what was written, He's dealing with what had been said. Every time he says, you have heard it said. And so what he's dealing with every single time, there's six times in in Matthew 5 where he says, you've heard it said, but I say. What he's doing is he's going and dealing with the different rabbinical teachings and different um, sects of the Pharisees where they were teaching the laws of Moses in a twisted or perverted way. So he goes, you've heard it taught, you've heard it said this, But I'm saying it's this. And what he's doing is reinterpreting the law by Holy Spirit revelation. And so he's giving us uh, specific points that are dealing with uh, falsehoods that they had been taught at the time. And that's really important to understand as you're reading through the Sermon on the Mount. Because most of this isn't the exhaustive treatise on the subject. Obviously, two verses on marriage and divorce is not the exhaustive treatise but he's dealing with a falsehood that they'd been taught and he's, he's righting the wrong. Now, with that as our key verse that we're going to deal with, I want to go to Ephesians 5 and make some comments about marriage. So flip over with me to Ephesians 5. 
Ephesians 5 is Paul's chief teaching on the marriage relationship, on the marriage covenant. He tells husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church. And wives to honor and respect their husbands as the church should honor and respect and love Jesus. So he gives us details and he addresses both parties. And then he gives us the summary in verse 31 and 32. And that's what I want to point to. Because we have a very low view of marriage in our society. And unfortunately, it's really crept into the church in a big way. Until we'll see uh, ministers who will get divorced and they'll be, you know, out of their pulpit for a week or two and then right back in the pulpit just going on like nothing happened. And they'll be with a new wife, you know, three weeks later. And, and then other ministers will be doing the services. And, and it's like, well, is, is something, something's wrong with that, right? And the answer is yes, something's really wrong with that. And, and the, the deal is, we don't have the right vision of marriage. We don't have the right, uh, the, the truth of the sanctity of marriage. We have a very low view of marriage, and we have a very low view of God's opinion of marriage, and therefore we treat marriage in a very low and detestable way. And what Paul says in Ephesians 5, in his summary of his teaching, is this. Quoting Genesis 2, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Because this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. This is, this is a stunning mystery. This is a huge mystery. Because think about it. How does this work? How does this work? Two people who are not family, who essentially don't know each other, who have lived their, you know, the majority of their life apart, they meet, they say some words of commitment, they consummate the marriage, and now they're one. That is a stunning, ridiculous miracle. How, how does that happen? That is the most powerful thought. I mean, that's just an incredible, powerful mystery. That two people could stand, make covenant. They say words of commitment to one another. And and from that moment where they covenant together to be joined to one another, God honors those words and makes them one and they consummate it in the marriage bed. That is absolutely astonishing. They become one instantly. Pow! I love it. I love doing weddings. I love counseling couples who want to get married and doing premarital counseling. Because, you know, there they are, and they, they, you know, they're in love, and they're excited, and they've got all their fears and expectations, and it's, you know, whoa, you know, what's getting ready to happen? And I tell them, I go, here's what's going to happen. All the details aside, you know, the dress, the flowers, the honeymoon, the venue, the reception, all that aside, 
ultimately, this is what's going to happen. You guys are going to look at each other. You're going to promise to be each other's spouse forever. And God is going to honor that promise. And miraculously, you will be one. That's awesome. That is so, and I get to watch it. That is just as crazy as fun. How, this is, how does this happen? And they become one by covenant. Well, you know, it's interesting. It's the same way you get born again. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and you believe in your heart, you shall be saved. If you confess to another your undying pledge of love, you shall be one. That's how the Lord does it. He gets you married the same way he gets you saved. By the words of your mouth, confessed in faith. He, you cut a covenant. Oh, it's so powerful. It's a huge, huge mystery. It's a miracle. And I, I get, I, I mean, as a, as a preacher, I get the best seat in the house. Because, I, I mean, it's just, you know, I get all the behind the scenes you know, I get to pray with the bride beforehand, and I get there and try to, you know, get everybody calmed down and don't lose your mind and just uh, hang with me and I'll get you through this. And it is so powerful. And uh, here's the thing. <laughs> and this is what we've lost. He says it's a great mystery. It's a great miracle that takes place. He goes, but it's not even about the people. It's about Jesus and the church. And what we've lost is this. All day, every day, when you see a married couple, those of you who are married, when you look at your spouse, all day, every day, it's a continual testimony of something far greater than you and your spouse. It's a testimony of Jesus and his bride. It's a testimony of this, that eternally, deity is going to be joined to humanity because of love and through covenant. Our marriages are not primarily about us. Whoop. They're not mostly about you. Paul's whole teaching in Ephesians 5 says, this thing is actually about Jesus. And what we've lost is the knowledge of God in marriage. The glory of marriage that declares the knowledge of God. When you see that woman in that white dress and you see that groom... And they're making an oath to one another. It's a continual, t every wedding is a, is a testimony of Jesus who's purified for himself and presented to himself a, a pure and spotless bride. Beloved, there's a day coming. Do you get this point? There is a day coming. You and I are going to marry Jesus, joined eternally to Jesus and as much of a miracle as it is when two become one through words of, of covenant, the miracle is, I mean, exponentially greater because of this. You said, 
I want you to be my Lord. I believe in my heart that you are resurrected. You died for my sin and you are raised from that. You said that. God took that as a pledge of betrothal. And there is a day coming when the fullness of you, the purchased possession, will be redeemed by him. It's called the marriage supper of the Lamb. You will be his. He will be yours. You will be joined together forever. It's not just, yeah, they got married. It is the most powerful theological explanation in living color of something that's going to happen for all believers. And, And we will be joined to deity forever. He says the Holy Spirit in our heart is only the down payment. Because in a minute, every pore and every fiber of your being will be permeated with glory. And you will be joined to the Lamb forever. And what we've forgotten, what we've missed is the marriage covenant is about God before it's about us. When you said, I do, when you pledged your heart to that person, it wasn't about you first. It was about him first. A testimony of him. That's why he gave marriage. To testify of him. And what we've made it about is us. We made it about our preferences, our style, our likes, our dislikes. And so then we've become foolish with it because we think it's actually about us instead of about him. And, And we apply wrong ideology to the marriage covenant. And we think things like, you know, love is a feeling that, you know, one minute you're in love and the next minute you're out of love. And people say, I fell out of love. Well, let me just tell you something. You don't fall into love and you don't fall out of love. Love will apprehend you, but love is a continual choice. It's a continual choice you make. Love is a choice to bless and serve and give and offer yourself for the benefit of another without regard to you. That's love. But what we've got this thing confused with is we think love is about us. And so here's what we we think. We like how the person makes us feel. We like how we feel around them. We like their jokes. We like the way they look. We like their smile. We like that warm, fuzzy feeling on the inside. We like to be seen with them. We want good pictures. You know, and then we say, I love you. And what, it, what we're really saying most of the time is, I love how you make me feel. I love how I feel when I'm around you. I love me. <laughs> That's really what most of us are saying when we say, I love you. We're really saying, I love me. Oh, I love how me feels when I'm around you. I love me. And when me quits feeling good, we say dumb things like, I don't love you anymore. You know what the standard for love is? Jesus. You know what the standard for our vows are? Jesus vows to us. You know what the standard for the covenant of marriage is? Jesus' covenant with us. Jesus will never fall out of love with you. 
no matter how goofy you are. Never. You know what he said? He goes, I'll never leave you nor forsake you, ever. You know, and some people say, well, we're just, we're just incompatible. We've just grown apart. We're just, we just don't, we're just not, we're just not compatible anymore. Beloved, there's never been a greater incompatibility gap than God and us. It's, it's, I mean, you how do you measure that? God of another order and you and I, like really. It, there's never been two more incompatible. And there's never been a greater pledge of covenant. Because we've made this thing about us instead of about him, we've approached it all wrong. And so then when we, when it doesn't go the way we want it, when the, our preferences are, 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 you know, crossed and when our desires aren't fulfilled, we start departing from a covenant that we made over frivolous things. And beloved, I say this, we have got to get back the sanctity of marriage. We have got to get back the holiness of matrimony. We've got to get back the glory and the knowledge of God in the marriage covenant and get a high view of marriage. Because if we'll get a high view of marriage, we'll get a high view of Jesus. Because that's who it's about. It's about him first and then us. Love is for the other. If you were to spend your whole life serving and blessing and giving to your spouse at the expense of your preference, you will have loved well and you'll be rewarded incredibly. This is the internship. This is not about what you can get in this age. It's about what you can give in this age. The concept, and I'm, now I'm shooting at this target, the concept that somebody could believe that if our spouse gets sick, it's okay to divorce, is completely outside the bounds of the scripture. It's a complete misunderstanding of the entire picture and covenant of marriage. Our vows are based on his vows to us. Our love for another is based on his love for us. These things can't be done away with. They can't just be thrown off. We've got to raise the vision, the, the value of marriage. We've got to get back its sanctity. And we've got to get a high vision of the marriage covenant and recognize that our marriage declares the glory of God. It declares the glory of God. That's what it's about. A declaration of him. Now, with that idea in mind, let's come back to Matthew 5. Now, I am coming to believe that Jesus' teaching in Matthew 5 over these five areas, these five toxins, and the antidote, I want to just propose this, just a thought for further investigation is actually, at its core, a marriage teaching. Now think about this. Malachi, the last prophet of the Old Testament, one of the chief issues, probably that he spends the most time on, is the issue of treachery in marriage. Malachi 2 
spends almost the whole chapter dealing with the way that uh, men were dealing treacherously with their, their spouses. And they were using Abraham and, and Hagar as an excuse for their own marital treachery. And Malachi 2, he's correcting that. And he goes, let me get this straight. God hates divorce. And Malachi begins to drop bombs on the treacherous way that men were dealing with their, their wives and how they were flippantly putting their wives away in divorce. Now, I think it's possible. This is just a, I'll propose this to you. Malachi is the last prophet of the Old Testament and Jesus in, in the book of Matthew. Now, God's been silent for 400 years and now Christ is speaking. I think it's possible he's picking up where Malachi left off. And here's why. If you look at those five key points, those five key toxins that he addresses in, in Matthew 5, it's a really good marriage teaching. He deals with anger in the heart, lust in the heart, breaking the marital covenant, keeping your yes, yes, and your no, no, and retaliation. I want to tell you something. If you get those five handled, you're going to stay married a long time. Keep your yes, yes, and your no, no. That'll solve a lot. And then he sums it up and says, love. You've heard it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. He goes, I say, love even your enemy. And I would parenthesize, put in parentheses, even if they're the person in the bed next to you. Love even the one that you have problems with. And, and so this teaching in Matthew 5 is an incredible marriage teaching. I think he's dealing with marital treachery. I think he's hitting it, and he's hitting it from a bunch of different angles, and he's applying lots of different other uh, uh, thoughts to it, and it's, it's broader than just marital treachery, but I think he's got that at the center, and so I think... The Matthew 5, 21 through 48, those five toxins and the antidote, I think it crescendos in verse 31 and 32 where he makes his statements about marriage and divorce. Now let's read the verse again. Verse 31. Furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. Now here's the thing. What the Pharisees were teaching at the time was pulled from Deuteronomy 24, which is probably the, the singular Old Testament passage that expresses this idea of divorce in terms of a teaching. And what they were teaching was this. There was a whole school of rabbinical thought that, would that took the Deuteronomy 24 passage and there's a phrase in that passage that says if you find uh, some indecency, some indecency in your spouse, you can, you can give her a certificate of divorce. And so what the, this whole school of rabbinical thought taught was, they taught that that could be anything. That could be she didn't prepare or season the meals right. And you, that if a man found that indecent, he could give his wife a certificate of divorce. I just thought to myself, you know, if she burnt the meal, you, get, you, you know, you can divorce her. Well, what about you, guy? 
what kind of a cook are you? We're going to get a whole new revelation on a burnt offering. I mean, and, and, but this was literally the practice that for, for almost any reason, if a man found uh, some reason he didn't, he just decided he didn't want to be with that spouse anymore, he could just divorce her. It was very one-sided. It was very difficult for a woman to, to, to get divorced, to file for it. And, and so it was, it was very, there's a lot of inequality in it. And so um, what the Pharisees are going to come back to in another passage that, I, that if you're going to study this out, you've got to look at it. It's Matthew 19, 3 through 9. And what they're going to come back later and ask Jesus is, is it, so are you saying it's not okay for a man to divorce his, woman, his wife for any reason? And Jesus refers back to Genesis. He goes, from the beginning, it wasn't like that. The two became one flesh. It was a miracle. It was a mystery. It was supernatural. He goes, but Moses, because of the hardness of your heart, permitted it. Now, here's the thing. They go, they say in Matthew 19, they go, well, how come Moses commanded it? He goes, no, no, no. He never commanded it. He permitted it. He didn't prescribe it. It was, it was an allowance but it was never a command. It was never a command. It was a concession. Because you're hard hearts. And here's what the certificate of divorce under Moses was about. Don't think what modern day divorce is. Because it's completely different. Moses' certificate of divorce was put in place to protect the wife. And here's why. Men would send their wives away and get rid of them. And then what they would do is, whenever it seemed good to them, they would pull them back and say, you're my wife. You have to provide in the home and you have to, to meet my sexual needs. And they would deal extremely treacherously with their wives. Sometimes when they sent them away, the woman was thought of as an adulteress. Because you're not supposed to, you know, send her away unless she's an adulteress. So what Moses' certificate of divorce puts in place is it clears the wife. If the man decides he wants to get divorced from her, he can give her a certificate of divorce. And the certificate of divorce does three things. Number one, it clears her of adultery. It says she's not an adulteress. He's divorcing her for other reasons, some indecency. She's not a, a, an adulteress. Number two, it frees her from having to perform any marital duties in the home anymore. He can't just divorce her and then take her back. In fact, they couldn't get remarried if, he, if the man would give a certificate of divorce. And then, and then thirdly, it frees her to be remarried. And then fourthly, it's a deterrent to divorce. Because if that's the case, you can't get her back and it's, you know, she's free to be, you know, to go on, then this issue, it, 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 the, uh, the certificate of divorcement that Moses put in place, it's a deterrent to frivolous and hasty divorces over foolish ideas. So when Moses gives that, uh, when he gives that concession because of their hard hearts in Deuteronomy 24, here's what ends up happening. One of the key rabbinical schools takes the language of some indecency, if you find some indecency in her, and says it's for, it can be for any reason. 
you can get rid of her. And so, whereas Moses was trying to limit divorce, what they do is they begin to teach the concepts of divorce and they broaden it. And they use this some indecency to, to, to be for anything, like if she burnt the, the food. And so when Jesus shows up and he says, you have heard it said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. He goes, but I say, whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery. When he's saying that, he is undoing the false teaching around the certificate of divorce. Now stay with me. The certificate of divorce said to the world, she hasn't committed sexual immorality, but I'm getting rid of her anyway. Jesus comes back and says, I'm telling you, the only reason you can do divorce is if there's sexual immorality. He's tightening the noose. Are you tracking this? He's dealing with the issue of frivolous divorce and men, again, using marriage and using the marriage covenant chiefly for themselves. And so what he says here is this. He goes, this whole concept of divorce was never the idea. He, He develops it in Matthew 19. And he says, the the whole idea that Moses did, he did that because you guys were hard-hearted. You guys have been giving the certificate of divorce, sending your wives away for anything, and it's clearing her of being, uh, uh, you know, saying that she didn't do any sexual immorality. He goes, but I'm telling you, the only real reason that you can divorce your wife is because of sexual immorality. And so he's changing it. He's, He's tightening the noose on it. And then he says this, and if you divorce her, For any reason except sexual immorality, you send her away. You're causing her to commit adultery. Well, what is that? What's packed in that statement is this. In that day and age, when a woman was divorced, she had to essentially get married for her livelihood. There wasn't a place in society for women to sort of, you know, get a job and begin to sort of like take care of themselves. So she had to get uh, married again. And, And the point he's making is this. If you have sent her away unjustly, when she gets married again, because that bond was never broken, now you're making her an adulteress, the one who didn't do adultery. And so what he's hitting is the treacherous way that the rabbis and the Pharisees had taught the issue of the marriage covenant, and he's dealing explicitly with this issue of sexual immorality being the only reason that they were supposed to have been getting divorced. And so when he says these things here and, and makes these statement about, statements about, uh, uh, I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery, and whoever, whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery, he's dealing with this core issue that truly the covenant is not broken if you're sending her away for burning the dinner. The marriage covenant is not broken if you just find some displeasure in her, that's just, you know, your personal preference. And so if you send her away, when she gets remarried, because your covenant's not broken, now you're transmitting your very sin onto her. You're causing her to become an adulteress. That's the nexus, the core reality of Jesus' teaching here. Now, that, what I've just said, obviously brings up 87 different questions. So is sexual immorality the only grounds for divorce? What about areas of abuse? What about people that are abandoned? What about, you know, things that we have in our day and age, like, 
you know, uh, drug addiction and, and, and all these other areas. And, and I will just say that I am not going to say any more than what's said here. Jesus identifies sexual immorality as a key feature that he is addressing as what breaks a covenant. I understand there are other nuances, there are other challenges, there are other, you know, problems that we face in our society today, but I'm not, I'm just not ready to comment on those yet. I have thoughts and feelings about it. I'm very tender towards people that are in rough, rough situations, but I'm not ready to comment one way or another about sort of other grounds uh, for divorce beyond what Jesus has said here. Um, I will say this, the term that's used there for sexual immorality is a broad term. It's the Greek word pornea. It literally means harlotry. It, it, it is the broadest term for sexual immorality. It's not simply the word for adultery. And so I think he has in mind many different uh, things even under that heading that are, are grounds for severing the covenant. But in terms of what are, the, uh, what are the grounds, I would just say this. Divorce is never commanded. It's always a concession. And even in the case of sexual immorality, it's still only a concession. And you and I both know of many couples who have gone through the horrors of sexual immorality in the marriage and God has released grace and through repentance there's been forgiveness and those marriages have been restored and and flourish. So I know there's many different questions that arise there but I'm just going to stick with that for now and I'm sure later I will give a much more extensive teaching along these lines but suffice to say Jesus teaching here is trying to get rid of the treachery trying to get rid of the frivolity and and, uh, the divorce issue and trying to bring it back to this you're one flesh you're joined together what God has brought together let nobody put asunder and then he explains further in, in Matthew 19 verse 3 through 9 that sexual immorality is at least one of the ways, and I think he's just, he's just dealing with that because it's the key thing uh, that the uh, marriage covenant can actually be dissolved and, um, and somebody can get remarried. Okay. I want to make one statement because this is a question I feel like I can answer in regard to somebody who gets divorced before they get saved. What do you do with that? And I would just say this. Every sin that's outside of Christ is handled exactly the same way. The blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus provides justification and forgiveness for every sin that you committed prior to becoming born again. Now, as may be the case with a divorce and many other things that may happen prior to when you got saved, there may be a situation where you need to make restitution. For instance, I've, I've had the uh, uh, situation arise where a guy that got saved, he had actually murdered somebody before he got saved. And he got saved and he, he's, what do I do? He goes, I'm convicted. He goes, I've been running. He goes, but I'm convicted. I said, you've got to turn yourself in. You've got to make restoration and restitution for that sin. You're forgiven in Jesus, but there are natural implications to this. You took another person's life. You've got to go and try to make that right. And you know what? He did. He turned himself in and he, and he had a, a, um, 
he got a sentence, but he was favorably handled. It was amazing the favor of the Lord that was on him as he went through his sentence. It was a powerful thing. And so I would, I would apply that same uh, ethical stance to, to divorce before you get saved. If there is an opportunity for uh, the person who's been divorced to make restoration with uh, their spouse, uh, I think that you've got to at least make an attempt at that. Now, if one or both parties is remarried, there is no opportunity for that. Some people get confused and they go, well, I got divorced before I got married. I got remarried after I got saved. And now we got to get divorced so I can go ahead and make that right again. No, that's wrong. And I understand, but it's, it's, it's out of a good heart. They're trying to make restoration, but that's not, that's not proper. But if there is an opportunity for restoration, I think you got to at least prayerfully bring it before the Lord and ask the Lord to deal with the junk that's in you. Because you can't go through divorce without there being violence in you. I mean, just it, it covers you with violence and bitterness, and, and it's just hurtful. It's, I understand it's very hurtful. I come from a divorced family. I understand much of the challenges. But you have to ask the Lord to deal with the, the, the things that are in your heart that are a problem. And I think you ask him to help you make restoration. And if it's possible, praise the Lord. And if it's not, praise the Lord. But at least you do what's in your ability to be at peace. And I think that's proper in God. Now that's one area that I think I can comment on. And I think I have clarity. Okay, good. I'll just summarize by saying I'm really, really burdened over the state of the way that we look at marriage and the way that we flippantly handle divorce and how we're so willing to accept divorce. I really feel like there's grace in God to overcome uh, that attack on the knowledge of God. And I feel like this, the Lord, I believe, is going to raise up proclaimers, and, and it may be, you know, people with larger or smaller platforms, the platform size isn't the issue, but people with real revelation of the covenant of marriage and the glory of God in it to declare truth about marriage and ultimately it's truth about the knowledge of God in marriage. And I believe what he's going to do is he's going to counter this attack on his, on his fame and on his glory through truth proclaimers of the glory of marriage and the beauty of the covenant and the sanctity of this issue. And simultaneously, I think, in the knowledge of God, he is going to deliver many that have been through the tragedy of divorce. He's going to lift them right out of shame. And, and I believe, see, I, I believe that there's many who have been divorced who have put themselves on the bench. And, and I believe the Lord is going to bring healing and restoration and those that have been wounded in that area are going to actually become healers in that area to others. I believe he's going to do both of those things in this hour. So amen.